I was in the Mission and I was walking down 20th Street and I walked by where Mission Records used to be mm-hmm. and it's like a tapas place or whatever mm-hmm. but the records the neon and I love neon signs I'm always taking pictures of them and mm-hmm. the neon sign that says records is still there mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I pulled out my phone and wrote down the lyric there's all these signs for places that don't exist that was musician Chris Onisorg I'm Jeff and this is Storied San Francisco Every week on this podcast, we feature musicians, photographers, graphic designers, journalists, and other San Franciscans talking about living, working, and doing their thing here. It's a way to get to know your neighbors. Welcome to episode 30, part two. In this podcast, Chris talks about moving to San Francisco and starting a band, Ex-Boyfriends, almost immediately after his arrival. He'll start us off with the end of his time in New York in 2003. Here's Chris. Um, I needed to be somewhere other than New York. I had lived there. I lived there for about, almost a year after I graduated from college in 97. I made a lot of stupid choices in my living situation because everybody, everybody has a bad New York living story. I had one. Mm-hmm. I moved away to the Midwest for a year and a half to live cheaply in Lincoln, Nebraska around a few friends and play some music and have and quit a bunch of jobs and sort of be irresponsible for a minute. Mm-hmm. You can't be irresponsible in New York if you're not rich or Correct. have trust fund or parents, you know. Correct. Then I moved back to New York. I lived there for almost four years and I got laid off. I fell into working in the dot-com world through a friend when I was moving back to New York. And then I fell out of it when 9-11 happened, post.com crash. And I got laid off at the beginning of 02. I spent a year trying to find a job. I applied everywhere. I was registered with seven temp agencies. I got a week's worth of work. The band that I was in, which was kind of the only thing really keeping me in New York because I was heavily falling out of love with it, that ended and I just was like, I got to do something. I'd been to San Francisco several times. I thought about living here. And I, I had a friend at the time who lived in a co-op house and was like, you can come stay with me. You can stay in our guest room for a month for 100 bucks In the city? Yeah. Oh, nice. over, it's over on Baker and McAllister. It's called Baker's Dozen. Mm. I think back then it was called East West House. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I knew someone else. Oh, Jenny from Eraserada mm-hmm. was a really good friend of a good friend of mine in New York. She needed a roommate for the month of February while a longer term roommate was moving in a month later. So she gave me a room for like nothing in Oakland in her her warehouse space, um, Club Hot, Club Not. So I was like, okay, I have a soft landing. I have a little bit of money and I can just look for a job. And so I got, I applied a few places. I got hired at Good Vibes my third week here. And it was going to be my sort of like, um, you know, fill in, filler job. But like any good, you know, founded by lesbians co-op, it sucked me in for like two and a half years. Right. And uh, so, yeah, that was that was how I came to came to be here. You know, had a fast friendship and I briefly played drums with an incarnation of Tartuffi when I first moved here. Okay. Because our my New York band and their band had played shows together when we were respectively on tour it wasn't really right for me. I'd, I'd sort of jumped in into other bands that were formed, but it was always like a come on tour with us kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, eh, I kind of want to start a band. I don't want to join an existing one mm-hmm. unless it was just like make a record or, you know, go on tour with us for a few weeks. 
And, oh, you um, always played drums? Right, yes. I was playing drums. Only? Um, yeah, I'd mess with guitar off and on, but I didn't start doing anything serious with that until like five years ago. And Colin's band Amsgray was wrapping up. They played their last show. And not long after that, he and I started playing together. We had one practice with a bass player from a well-loved uh, SF indie band who I won't name. Okay. But she... Um, and then we were supposed to have one the following week. And we worked on like one song. Like I think Colin had a few songs kicking around from Amsgrade that he hadn't done anything mm-hmm. with. Or they never got, you know, fully fleshed out. And um, it was like a really goofy song. Like it's on our first, the first ex-boyfriend CD, but it's really goofy. And um, she, we were going to have practice with her. And it was like, Colin was in touch with her, but she was like not responding about meeting at the same time and place. And then like the day of, she was like, I just don't want to make angry music anymore. (laughs) So I'm not into this. And we were like, okay, it's like not angry at all. It was a song called Stop, Drop, Rock and Roll. It was so cheesy. And, uh, but so we just played together for a couple months, just the two of us and we're writing some stuff. And then the last Amscray show, one of the other bands on the bill was, Peter Harb's band um, Charmless mm-hmm. and they played with Amsgray a bunch and he loved he loved Amsgray he really liked Colin's songwriting and he said you know when the show is over look if you ever do anything else and you need another guitar player bassist whatever I'd love to be a part of it and then Colin casually mentioned this and I was like why don't you get in touch with him and so he came and we had like a practice with him and it was like instant with Peter on bass? Yeah, with Peter on bass. And what year was Colin this? on guitar. This is 2003. Probably around like, I remember Still Colin your, and I were playing maybe March, April. Still your first year. Yeah. First couple months. And then by May or June, Peter had joined. And okay. it was instantly like, we instantly wrote like two new songs that were my favorite songs that we ended up recording later on for the first album. And yeah, we just started playing out a ton and... Three-piece. Yeah, three-piece, trying to build our audience. Colin was the main vocalist. Peter did a lot of great harmonies. And then over the years, Peter started contributing more songwriting. But he always had Charmless going on. And we had some crazy... There was like a little weird rivalry at first. Like, we all love everybody from that band and vice versa. But there was a lot of stuff where like his bandmates were not happy that they (laughs) had to check to book a show to see if we had a show booked mm-hmm. and we were always really good about it. Cause I'm like just super anal and OCD and then they wouldn't always do it. And I'd be like really angry cause they booked something when we already had something booked, but um, which only once resulted in total tomfoolery. Um, we were supposed to play a show at the elbow room and Peter convinced us that, Charmless could keep a date at the Starry Plow in the East Bay because they were opening and he'd be there in plenty of time and he showed up 20 minutes late for our set. We set up and played for 15 minutes oh and God. I don't think the elbow room would ever let us play there again. Wow. But, um, but all yeah. told 20 minutes as yeah. far as that commute and all that isn't bad. But when you're, yeah. when you're like, no, 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 we're running. A- but I mean, considering right. load was like at six and our set was like at, you know, nine thirty or 10. Right. It's like, Ugh. yeah. But, um, but yeah, so we played together for the first few couple years and wrote a bunch of stuff, played out all over the, you know, city and the Bay area. And then we decided to record our first album and pretty much, I think charmless, and Peter was in another old band a, a while back. 
I'm forgetting which one, but none of us had ever been on a label. You know, Am's Grey, everything they put out was self-released. All my old bands did that back mm-hmm. in New York. Um, I think Peter was in a band that had like one seven inch put out on a super, super tiny local label, Mm -hmm. but same kind of thing. Everybody just putting stuff out themselves. So we were like, well, we'll, we'll record it. And then we were like, we really like this. Why don't we shop it around? And if no one's interested, no one's interested, we'll self-release, but maybe someone will take interest. And for about a week or two, Lookout was really interested in us. And this was maybe like, 2005 okay and we were like oh my god look out like even if i don't love everything that's on that label or never did it would just be like holy shit we're on lookout they're iconic right absolutely and at that point they were in that realm of almost a major indie right you know they weren't it wasn't like sub pop or you know uh matador where they were like co-owned right but it still was at that level and um they were like into us and we were waiting and then they were like we really like the music, but we've just decided we're only going to be signing bands that we think are a quote, sure thing. And we were okay. like, okay, like a little hurt, but whatever. And then they put something out by some band called like hockey something. <laughs> and then like less than a year later, the whole thing came out about how the label like hadn't paid Green Day their royalties in years and years. And Green Day was like holding off and holding off and holding off on suing. And, you know, we all know the. I actually just remember this because I just read How to Ruin a Record Label by Larry Livermore. Mm. And I was like, oh, right. We almost were on that label for a second. Mm. But I clearly we dodged a bullet. And then we ended up meeting with the guy who ran the East Bay label, um, Absolutely Kosher. He liked our CD and we met him at the Pilsner and it was very like, have a couple beers, chat, handshake, I'll get you a a contract. And the only reservations we had because we'd already paid and recorded the album, it's pretty standard, but they wanted to own all of our masters and it was going to be this forever universal blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. A good friend of mine who I used to work with back in New York, who's in music, his friend is a woman who's an entertainment lawyer or was at the time. And he got in touch with her and I said, you know, we don't have a lot of money with you over something. And she was like, if they just fax over the contract, I'll look it over and send it back That's with nice. notes. And so she was just like, here's what I think doesn't really serve you. And especially because you've recorded everything yourself and paid for it. it was So I think it was going to be more like a licensing thing. We returned with those requests to the label he said everything was fine with that but it ended up being kind of a awfully typical story of like we never got a new contract to sign Mm. we never knew how many because we did it was for a two record contract meaning meaning the one you were recording two albums yeah so we put out they put out the first one dear john um and that had they had like an outside indie PR company that I thought did an amazing job. We got actually got a like a for what for us what felt like a lot of press. Mm-hmm. Um, Spin.com used to do this band of the day thing, and they got us on that. And it was on a Friday, and it was a holiday weekend. So oh. on the front page of Spin's website, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, holy crap, was a picture of us with a little 
little corner banner that said South by Southwest 2006 performers because we were going to be at the absolutely kosher um, uh, showcase. Okay. And so I thought they did an amazing job and, and a lot of people bought the record. We got a lot of attention. Colin got a lot of uh, interest directly to him from like the gay press because he and I are both gay. So we got some of that. But to me, I was like, whoa, this feels amazing. And then when we did our second album that we were supposed to have a budget for, but we never got one and we paid for it all ourselves. Um, but they paid to manufacture it. So that was at least nice. And they had some distribution. Um, we were told that they weren't working with the outside PR people anymore. Mm-hmm. They had someone in-house and they told us they didn't feel the outside PR company had done what they should have for the amount of money that Absolutely Kosher gave them. Mm-hmm. We were, none of us knew anything. We were like, okay, if you say so. You know, we thought they did great, but I was like, who knows? Maybe they paid them thousands and thousands. I, I don't know. Right. And so our second album, which was called In With, came out. And it was like it never existed. Mm. We went from having all this printed press and tons of online stuff to a few blog posts where we were on a list of releases. Mm-hmm. We got one post that featured us a little because the artwork for the CD was clue themed because oh. Colin and I are obsessed with the movie clue yes. and it had three interchangeable front cards with us looking oh, like characters. Wait, from how clue. did I not know this? Don't know. Cause it's amazing. And unfortunately my image is the one that's like the digital download default, <laughs> <laughs> like on Amazon. Oops. It's on <laughs> iTunes. It's me. And on Amazon, it's like Colin. And yeah. Um, but I might leave this in there, but I'm just, I just want to say that, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm a clue fanatic as well. Yeah. And, and also Colin and Chris and I have a, ongoing that needs to be updated <laughs> movie night movie night yeah, yeah we know we do anyway. and peter was just very game and went along for the ride because yeah. he could have cared game less. nice pun yeah oh but i didn't even i didn't even mean that um and it was it just ended up being really disappointing and we were you know every few months we'd send an email hey can we get that contract hey oh this is happening with the business oh this is happening with my personal life and you know we asked for can we we just want to know how many CDs we sold we have no clue we found out at one point once for Dear John because a friend of a friend of mine used to work for SoundScan Mm -hmm. and we had sold like 400 something Mm -hmm. which to us was astonishing yeah because previous to that it's like all you ever did was sell stuff at shows right you know and I mean I to this day I joke that you'll be able to build my coffin out of every CD or record of any band I've ever been in that I have left over in a box somewhere. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, we had a lot of fun and we kept on as a band, but it was really frustrating. And we were a very odd fit. Like we were the catchy indie pop rock band on a label with a lot more like noisy and experimental stuff. And we were told, you know, we feel like you're more marketable, you're more mainstream, and we think we could do a lot with you. And who knows? Maybe the first record, they thought we were going to pay off a lot more. Right. I don't know. But um, we would play. We played like several absolutely kosher related shows where we were constantly the redheaded stepchild. Mm. And it felt like we did all these kind of favors and then weren't treated well. So, you know, it's it's it sucks because I know that the guy who ran the label still claims to think we're wonderful and thinks that especially my feelings are over overreacting, but I'm just like, eh. What year did Inwith come out? Inwith came out in 2000. 
I, I'd have to look it up. I feel like uh, Dear John came out in either 2005, 2006, and In With came out in like 07 or 08. And okay. what was really frustrating was we were trying for like a late summer release. And by the time they got their shit together, it came out in like November. And at that mm. point, everyone's doing their end of the year best lists. And some little know-nothing indie band from San Francisco, regardless of whatever level of press we got that we were thrilled with, we were unknown. Yeah. And so for us to have a record come out when it's like, the only thing that's going to do well is like a Beyonce album or like Madonna's greatest hits volume 12, you know, it's no (laughs) one's going to give a shit. And so it just felt like this thing where we felt completely ignored and it was tough. It was like, it was way more of a blow than I expected it to be. And um, I think it was sort of disappointing because it felt like here I am in this city that, and this part of the world that's so different from so many places. It is more liberal. It's more radical. Like it's queer and it's artsy and it's music. And, and a lot of that was still in full effect. There was still a great music scene and there was still all this stuff going on. And then it felt so typical. It felt so like, oh, you met at a bar, you shook hands, they think you're great, they want to do all this stuff with you. It felt everywhere. Yes, it felt very like, <clears throat> like a template, like a mo- like a bad movie template about like a group of excited musicians signing on to like a cool local label. And I was like, oh, they can screw you over when they're small, not just when they're big. It's not like we were getting signed to Capital or some big record label where you almost expect you know we all know like oh TLC had to declare bankruptcy because (laughs) they signed a fucking horrible deal because they were teenagers who didn't know better you know and so it 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 didn't destroy the band or anything but I think it just made me it dampened my enthusiasm it put a cloud over yeah and experience We did our third album. We released it ourselves. We'd always wanted to put out vinyl. So we decided to spend money to put out like a limited run, which was super fun. And we still have so many of them. Before vinyl was hip again. Yeah. And that was our third album, um, Line In, Line Out, which is actually my favorite of all three. Colin and Peter really shared songwriting. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much collaborative. And I just, I like, I like all three of them, but it's the one I find that if I were to listen to any of them, I'll listen to that one. Um, you know, and then we still were a band for a couple years after that. And then it just kind of felt, I know I sort of spearheaded it, but it sort of felt like a time to at least take a break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Colin was in like two other, at least one other band, if not two. Lucky and, Jesus. Yeah, he was in Lucky Jesus. And I guess he was in Lucky Jesus and then, the Philistines came a little Kinda later. started after. Yeah. yeah. But it was a thing of, I also think I was just feeling like I wanted to do something different. Right. I'd never been in a band that long. And Yeah, um, this is what, five or six years? No, yeah, nine. six or seven years. It was nine, nine okay. years when we... Thank you for being No, it's okay, because it was around 2012 when we decided to like pretend we were Slater Kenny and go on an indefinite hiatus. Was your last show at the Eagle? It was. I was there. We did our, it was our goodbye for now show. Mm-hmm. We did a show with the Bruises and... Um, the Boars. One of it? Jeff Glaive's bands. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was it the Boars? I can't remember. No, no. Uh, but it, and it was really fun. Yeah. And we, we, uh, we did a few covers and we had a really good time. And then 
We actually played a show really soon after that, but it was for a friend's wedding. So it was just out of reception. And then like, we've done a couple things since then, but it's like, it's never like we're together again and we're, right. you know, doing, I mean, Colin's, Colin and Peter are now in a band together right. called Quiver and Quivers and Peter's still got Charmless. Charmless like kind of took a break for a year or two, but they've been together for a super long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I and think I saw them at Winters. Yeah. Five years ago or so. And I've had a they few things here and there since then, but um, it's really, I find it really, really hard to be an adult of a certain age <laughs> and have jobs and money and, you know, pay rent and live life and have time for band stuff and yeah. get it, you know, it's, it gets tougher and tougher. What is your favorite part of doing music? Um, is it is it the practice, the shows, the touring, the recording, the putting out, right? Like, you know. Yes. Do, do, do you have a... Uh... <laughs> well, I like all of those things. I would say of the... Probably the number one is the getting together, practicing, and working together. Hmm. It's this energy that you can't... I've, I, I think I experienced it to a degree when I was like... A kid and a teenager growing up in New Hampshire, I did a lot of theater. Mm-hmm. And there's some similarities to it, but it's like you're in a room with people and you're making this thing happen. And it often is this thing that like, you know, with ex-boyfriends, it was like Colin would bring in a song that was mostly written on his end. Peter and I would flesh it out. But we, you know, we both had a lot of input with like composition and We'd say, what if we start with this and move the chorus and da-da-da and, you know... um, It's the creative process. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, there are songs where I would just be like doing whatever on my kit in between songs and then Colin would start playing something along with it or Peter would. We What was so interesting, and I think this is true, like I've even just feel like I've read enough musician biographies where this just seems to happen where the songs that like fell out of our asses in like 10 minutes the were the ones that people like were always the most into. Yep. Not that they didn't like the songs that were more labored over, but it always seemed like when we were just like, you know, mm-hmm. and like a song came out, mm-hmm. like, you know, almost fully formed, like maybe it needed a little more like refining of the lyrics or tweaking here and there. Like the universe is saying, don't overthink it. It's almost just kind of, you know, Athena coming out of Zeus's skull as a full grown adult like that. And that would be the stuff that like people would go nuts for. And if we didn't play it at a show, they'd be like, why aren't you playing this song? You know? um, And so I think that's my number one favorite thing. I love playing shows. Shows are mine. Shows are great. There's something about recording that I find enjoyable, but it's also really stressful. Yes. As soon as the record button hits, I'm like, money is being spent. Right. And I get, by the time we did our third record, we were much more comfortable in the studio together and things we did a lot more like songs in one take and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, for me, the stuff that's live and immediate, whether it's practice and I mean, it you know, not to oversell it or gild the gild the lily or whatever but when you know i i work and i've been working for a long time as a hairstylist and my, a lot of my clients not all of my clients but it'll come up that i've 
played music and been in bands. And I've had clients who are like, oh, I've always wanted to play an instrument, blah, 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 but I never have. And I'm like, you should, you should, you should. And then they're like, oh, but I don't know if I either would want to or could be in a band or make. And I was like, look, that's just how I often have liked to do music. But you could sit at home and play piano and write 12 operas and never play them for anyone but yourself if that makes you happy. But I was like, there's so much in the world that's destructive. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that are literally destroyed, like with violence and crime and, and, and stuff, or just destructive to your personality your being your soul, your psyche, whatever you want to call it. And doing something where you are creating something even if it's you playing a cover of your favorite song on a guitar, you're, you're, it, to me, it's, it's very, you know, woo woo, but it's like, it's a counter energy to that. We recorded this episode at Chris's house in Lower Haight in April 2018. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald, aka Joe Bigale. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Please follow Storied San Francisco on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of our episodes and Michelle's photos of storytellers are up on our website, storiedsf.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. You can reach us by email at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Check back next week when we'll hear stories and poems from Mason J.